When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. This episode was pre-recorded as part of a live continuing education webinar. On-demand CEUs are still available for this presentation through all CEUs. Register at allceus.com slash Counselor Toolbox. Counselor Toolbox podcast is sponsored by BetterHelp, the world's largest e-counseling platform, providing accessible and affordable counseling services via messaging, live chat, phone, or video. To apply to be a counselor at BetterHelp with no overhead fees or cost, go to BetterHelp.com toolbox. You can also find a counselor by going to BetterHelp.com toolbox and clicking on Get Started in the upper right corner. Hi there, everybody, and welcome to today's presentation on Guidelines for Training for Trauma-Informed Care. Yeah, I know this is kind of a overview of a meta concept, but it gives you an idea about some of the types of things that you or your organization will need to learn and will need to know in order to actually implement, effectively implement a trauma-informed care perspective. So we're going to review recommended guidelines for preparing your organization to become trauma-informed. And I'm adding another class to our trauma-informed care certification that actually goes through a checklist of all the different things that you really want to look at and assess in your organization to make sure that it is trauma-informed from a clinical as well as an administrative perspective. Um, but today, we're just going to talk about the high-level stuff. Um, we're also going to review the core curricular elements for all staff and identify core concepts for understanding trauma. So core curricular um, elements in trauma-informed care ensures that all of the staff, not just your clinicians, your front desk staff, anyone who answers the phone, and your housekeeping staff even, um, are competent in engagement, rapport building, and communication with persons who have trauma histories. We also recommend or re recognize that most people have had trauma experiences in their life. So we're recognizing that when we're communicating with our staff members or with each other, that that person, that one of us or both of us, may have had trauma experiences. So we're still focusing on making sure to provide a safe environment for working, for recovery, etc. Training needs to cover a thorough assessment and a culturally sensitive, sensitive and trauma-informed differential diagnostic practice 
for mental health and somatic complaints. Well, okay, that was a lot of garbled gook. Basically, we need to make sure that when we're providing training to our staff and we're doing assessments, that we are recognizing the cultural nuances, what behaviors are um, and symptoms are more common in certain cultures, what somatic complaints mean in certain cultures, because some cultures tend to somaticize their mental health stuff because they see mental health as something much more difficult to talk about. So we need to understand, you know, what do these complaints mean, whether it's GI disturbances or difficulty sleeping or whether it is depression or anxiety. What do those symptoms mean to that person? Training provides strategies for problem prevention and resolution on an individual, family, and community level. So we want to prevent re-traumatization. We want to prevent problems that the person experiences. We want to prevent them from experiencing problems as a result of prior traumas. You know, if they have ingrained ways of reacting that in the past have protected them from trauma situations. We want to help them develop new skills and tools that can prevent them from encountering problems. What do I mean? If you've watched some of the other um, videos on creating sanctuary, restoring sanctuary, we talk a lot about violence and verbal violence, verbal aggression, physical violence, and even violence towards oneself in the form of um, self-injury or addictive behaviors and a variety of other things, can be ways that people cope with memories of trauma or cope with feeling unsafe. So we want to understand what do these behaviors do? How do these behaviors make this person feel safer or help them survive this moment? And then how can we prevent the problems created by these behaviors? How can we help them develop new behaviors so they don't have these ongoing problems? Training ensures establishment of an ongoing trauma-informed structure. Ongoing, that means not just, you know, you go through one training and then bada-bing, you're done. That means every year people are being trained in trauma-informed care. Regular supervision happens that makes sure that you're implementing care in a trauma-sensitive way, and if you're implementing um, trauma-specific interventions, that you're using those to fidelity. It also means that everyone who's hired in the organization is trained and regularly retrained in trauma-informed care, that supervision and um, employee evaluations reflect and embrace embracing trauma-informed care. And we need to make sure that the organization has procedures to monitor that all this stuff is happening. Training includes established interventions to diminish distress. So the sanctuary model is one of them, and it's great. It's not necessarily just trauma-informed, but it's a way to create a safe environment which doesn't re-traumatize people. It's a fabulous model, um, and you can get the book, Restoring Sanctuary. You may even be able to find it at your local library. Um, and you can learn more about the sanctuary model. I also have two videos that will be, um, and podcasts that will be coming out uh, this week on the sanctuary model, providing a high-level overview. 
Another intervention that is really helpful, um, I've used it in my cl clinics before, um, seeking safety. And seeking safety is actually a trauma-informed intervention, a trauma-specific intervention, and it helps people with co-occurring disorders and trauma histories become safer and establish a sense of um, personal efficacy and self-esteem and develop healthy coping tools. Now, the next couple are very cognitive in nature, and they won't necessarily be appropriate for all clients. Um, acceptance and commitment therapy, cognitive processing therapy, and dialectical behavior therapy all have pretty significant cognitive components to them, but all have very awesome techniques that can be used to help people um, with develop psychological flexibility, learn how to be mindful learn how to be aware of um, vulnerabilities, learn how to evaluate their cognitions and their reactions to determine whether they are currently safe, and learn how to deal with and prevent emotional dysregulation. Another um, trauma-informed um, or trauma-specific approach is compassion-focused therapy for trauma. Now, there are a lot of trauma-specific interventions out there, so these are not the only ones, but these are some of the more common ones that I've seen implemented um, and that a lot of clinicians are already at least moderately familiar with, so it's easier to implement in, in the long, long haul. Training ensures a full understanding of the local context and culture. So we don't want to assume that, you know, the clinic in rural Florida has the same expectations and needs and help-seeking behaviors in their clients than a clinic in the middle of downtown New York City. So we want to understand what are the help-seeking expectations of the population we're serving. What do they expect? Do they expect to see a physician and get medicated? Do they expect to see a counselor and talk about it? Do they expect it to be family therapy or individual? What do they expect? We want to understand their expectations about the duration of treatment and what obstacles they may have. Where I came from, you know, the University of Florida and Gainesville was, you know, pretty suburbanish. As soon as you got past that, it became very rural very quickly. Um, some of our surrounding counties had fewer than 5,000 people in the entire county. So resources were sparse out there. Transportation from those counties into Gainesville, you know, sometimes was an hour, hour and a half drive, and many of our clients didn't even have a car, and there was no public transportation. So we needed to look at obstacles to treatment from a financial standpoint, from, you know, a transportation standpoint, from a childcare standpoint. You know, if parents have kids at home, you know, how, are, how can they attend treatment? Because you can't really do treatment really well if you've got a three-year-old running around in the session. You know, that was one of the obstacles that we would run into a lot of times during spring, summer, and winter break uh, with our clients because they would all of a sudden have their, have their children. We didn't want them to not come for two weeks or two months, so we needed to look at what can we do to facilitate this population maintaining engagement in treatment. We want to recognize their preferences for types of interventions, whether it's med medication, family-focused cognitive, spiritual. Some cultures prefer to go with a 
spiritual healer or a natural healer of some sort. Um, some people will prefer Eastern medicine techniques. Other people will prefer Western medicine. We want to understand what is their preference. And we want to understand family and cultural attitudes about the involvement in the recovery process. Does the family need to be involved? You know, does the family want to be disengaged? Do they find it shameful? Um, what are their cultural attitudes about the presenting issues? What are their cultural attitudes about trauma? What are their cultural attitudes about recovery? What are their cultural attitudes about us, the organization, that often represents part of the system? You know, if the system has caused their trauma, then we can be seen potentially as an organization or a body that might traumatize them in the future. So it's going to be a lot harder to develop trust. We need to recognize that traumatic experiences are complex. And this is one of those core concepts that we need to, you know, really wrap our head around. It's emotional. It creates feelings of anger, anxiety, depression, um, guilt, grief, you know, lots of feelings associated with trauma. Physically, it um, activates the HPA axis. It can lead to brain changes, especially in um, young children, but even in older, you know, adolescents and adults. Um, you know, one of the things I want you to think about is the brain does not finish developing until about the age of 24. So we're taking these young people who are enrolling in the military, joining whatever you want to call it, when their brain is still very malleable and when the damage done to the brain is it's so much easier to do damage to the brain, and we're sending them overseas. And then we're surprised when they have difficulty dealing with it or they end up developing PTSD or something else. It doesn't really make sense to me. We need to recognize that there is a physical component. When the brain experiences trauma, neurochemicals, neurochemical balances change, wiring changes, basically. Um, it keeps people from getting enough sleep. It can cause all kinds of physiological changes. Um, so we want to recognize the impact of trauma physically. We want to recognize the impact of traumatic experiences interpersonally. When somebody feels traumatized, they can blame other people. They can feel victimized by other people. They can feel frustrated or abandoned by others who they thought were supposed to help them. Um, they can lose trust and faith in others, in the system, in themselves. You know, so there's a lot of potential impact interpersonally of trauma. Spiritually, a person's sense of connectedness and belongingness and purpose can be greatly impacted by trauma. And their environment can be impacted by trauma. You know, if because of a trauma, somebody has to leave their home, that can be additionally traumatizing. Um, if because of trauma, they don't feel safe where they're at, you know, that's trauma. So we need to look at um, all of the effects of trauma on the person when we're doing our assessment and when we're providing care and when we're creating an environment that is trauma-sensitive and trauma-informed. We want to make sure that it's emotionally safe, that people feel physically safe, that people feel safe interpersonally, that they don't feel like other people are out there that will harm, harm them, but they also don't 
they also feel like staff and their you know group mates or whatever are there to support them we want to create a um, environment that is supporting and self-regulating spiritually we want to support people's idea of connectedness and we want to make sure the environment communicates hospitality and a welcoming feel traumatic uh, trauma occurs within the context that includes the individual's personal characteristics life experiences and cir current circumstances what's traumatizing to one person may not be all that traumatizing to another person based on any of these things you know if you have two people that are exactly the same and maybe their current current circumstances are pretty darn similar to one another but their life experiences up to now have been very different and one person had a great home life has a supportive family and they've encountered challenges before and they've been successful at resolving them the other person didn't have such a supportive family they've had lots of traumas before and they always end up feeling disempowered and victimized well both of those people are going to experience the current whatever the current situation is probably very differently one is going to expect disempowerment one is going to expect that they can handle the situation most likely um, so some of the things that we want to look at and this isn't all of them we want to look at prior stressors in the last six months how worn down and burnt out are they and this includes physical stressors like surgeries and illnesses emotional stressors interpersonal stressors you know relationship difficulties breaking up with a spouse or losing a best friend environmental stressors and that could be everything from you know living in an environment where they don't get enough sleep because the neighbors are playing their stereo at all hours in the night to living in an environment where they physically don't feel safe we want to look whether at whether they have current mental health issues or a history of mental health issues if they're currently managing their mental health issues fine well that's wonderful that's, that's great however if they have a history of mental health issues we know that it's likely that current trauma and stress could trigger some of those mental health symptoms to come back so we do want to be more acutely aware of that we need to be aware of their cognitive developmental stage children you know up until about the age of 12 think differently than adults children are not little adults they can't think abstractly they can't think about hypotheticals or all the possibilities they can think about what's in front of them and they can think about concrete things so if you you know give them manipulatives which is why we use manipulatives so much in the younger grades young children not only do they think concretely they tend to think in all-or-nothing terms there, there's very little gray area there it's either I love you or I hate you you'll protect me or you won't um, I'm, I'm good or I'm bad I succeeded or I failed that's children tend to think that way so it's up to us as adults to help them see the middle ground um, and children tend to be very egocentric they take everything very personally when parents get divorced they feel like it's their fault if the teacher is in a bad mood they may think they did something wrong um, so it's important to recognize how the person interprets what's going on um, one other cognitive issue is comparative experiences somebody who's 10 in comparison to somebody who's 30 
has very few experiences to gauge what's going on by. So it feels very much more overwhelming to a 10-year-old than potentially to a 30-year-old because a 30-year-old has been through other things. Think about children and they have their first crush or their first love and then, you know, that they break up or it's unrequited love. To a young adolescent, that can feel devastating. It can feel like the end of the world because they don't have anything to compare it to. They've never had their heart broken before. To somebody who's much older, yeah, it hurts, but it doesn't feel as all-encompassing and life-shattering as it does, you know, when, when you're younger a lot of times. So we need to recognize this because the way people interpret things is going to really affect how traumatic they see it and whether they, they see it as something that is dealable and survivable or whether they see it as something that is just going to completely crush them. We need to consider people's ability to meet their biological and safety needs. Um, you know, what's traumatic for one person, you know, for a child, children can't cook for themselves. They can't, um, you know, rent a house. They can't drive a car. So if something is very traumatic in their home, if they are in an environment where they feel stuck, it can increase the trauma if they don't feel like they're ever safe. Social support is so important. Um, they, they say that after a trauma, there are basically two windows. The first 24 hours is, well, the first four hours is the most crucial window. And if people receive social support in that first four hours, it tends to really help a lot with integrating the experience and helping them successfully resolve the trauma. The next window is 24 hours, and if they receive support within the first 24 hours from people, then a lot of times that, again, will help them experience the trauma as um, less oppressive, and it improves their chances of successfully resolving the trauma. After about 24 hours, the brain has compartmentalized it, because it doesn't want to deal with that crap anymore, and stuffed it somewhere. So it be becomes harder to integrate that experience into what's happened because it's now stored on a shelf somewhere. So we want to help people with social support integrate this information before it gets stored on their shelf. Um, proximity to a safe space. When a trauma happens and it's closer to a place where somebody fe felt safe, it can be more devastating. So if a trauma happens and it's in your own house, that's more traumatic than something that even if it doesn't happen to you, that's more traumatic than something that may happen, you know, three blocks over. If it's something, I remember when I was in college, um, unfortunately, we had a serial killer on the loose. And when I first started college there, the whole campus felt safe. It felt like I was a place, it was a place I could go jogging at 10 o'clock at night with my headphones on and nobody would touch me because it was like my neighborhood. But then, you know, uh, the, the whole serial killer thing, it became much less safe feeling. So people didn't walk around with their headphones on anymore, and people didn't jog as much at night um, because this happened to in our safe space. So all of a sudden, our, our sense of um, safety was just kind of shattered, and we're like, okay, we're, we're not safe here anymore. And current coping skills and tools. If the person 
has experienced things throughout their life and developed healthy coping skills and tools, they will likely respond better to trauma than someone who hasn't. So these are a few things that contribute to differentiating who is going to be more devastated from trauma or who is more likely to develop acute stress disorder than, than other people. Traumatic events often generate secondary adversities, life changes, and distressing reminders in people's lives. You know, whatever it is, if, let's think about a divorce, that can be traumatic. It may trigger housing changes. It may trigger loss of the ability to see your kids on a regular basis. Um, it can, physical illnesses or injuries can be caused by a trauma. You know, the trauma may be a car accident, but that car accident may have broken your back. So you have chronic pain forevermore, or you're paralyzed. Um, it can cause sleep difficulties. Um, and let's, let's actually go back up to physical illnesses. Even a non-physical trauma, such as, you know, the hurricane coming through and people having to go to a shelter, that's a housing change. And it can cause physical illnesses because people are stressed out, so their immune system goes down. They're stressed out, so their stomach and their GI starts to get upset. They may have free, more frequent headaches. They will probably have increased sleep difficulties because their threat response system is turned up. They may experience mood changes. Well, if you're not sleeping well, if you're not feeling well, and you're not sleeping in your own bed, I can certainly see how it might make you have some mood swings. There may be feelings of shame, guilt, and anger, you know, shame about not being able to protect your family or about getting into the situation. People may feel guilty. Um, and even if they didn't have anything to do with it, again, let's think about the shelters. If they had to take their family and go to a shelter because of a, a natural disaster, you know, seeing how much it's upsetting the kids you know, really cuts to the core of, of, of parents. And we're, we feel guilty. We feel bad. We feel frustrated. We feel helpless. Um, and that's, you know, on some levels, traumatizing to parents. And anger, you know, and sometimes, we'll, we'll stay with the hurricane example right now, people can feel angry at, you know, whatever caused the trauma, but they can also feel angry at other people for not helping. They can feel angry at themselves for, whatever they feel they didn't do that they should have or they did that they shouldn't have you know a lot of this stuff and blaming and try to make trying to make sense of what's going on can come out now there's a loss of significant people or things you know after a after the hurricane you know some people may have lost their entire house some people you know the entire first floor was flooded so even though the house is still standing they lost all their mementos some people lost pets um, sometimes losses like plane crashes can re cause the loss of um, a family member and you know that also may result in other people in the family just kind of backing off and going into seclusion for whatever reason because they have difficulty dealing with it so there may be secondary losses when people get divorced for example you know you're you've got in-laws on on either side when you get when you get married when you get divorced you lose those in-laws you're probably not going to be calling your ex-mother-in-law on the holidays um, so that can feel very traumatizing 
Visual, auditory, and olfactory reminders. So what you see, what you hear, and what you smell um, can trigger flashbacks and strong emotional reactions. So it's important to understand that these reminders are there. It can be in a TV show. It can be something innocuous um, in, you know, when you go into a place. I know at one point um, somebody was wearing a, a resistance vest in the gym and it looked like a bomb vest, you know, one of those vests that somebody wears when they've got a bomb strapped to them. And it was triggering for some people that were in this facility because the person had the re resistance vest on, but it reminded them of something else that was much less safe. Um, so it can trigger emotional reactions. We want to be aware that those are there. You know, if you're flipping through the channels on the TV and you happen to pause too long and Criminal Minds is on and somebody's screaming in agony because they're being tortured by a serial killer, that can trigger somebody's um, past memories. So just being sensitive to triggers and reminders that might exist and all of the reverberating impacts of trauma. You had this loss, but what? how else did this loss affect you? People exhibit a wide range of reactions to trauma and loss. Not everybody develops PTSD. Some people do. Some people have very strong grief reactions. Some people have very different grief reactions. Sometimes there's a disruption of attachment and or peer relationships. People try to withdraw because, you know, that loss was too painful. I don't want to risk losing anybody else, so I'm going to keep everybody I can at arm's length. There can be problems with emotional regulation. You know, that person is just really stressed out. And, you know, as you learn more about trauma and hypocortisolism um, and the brain changes that happen with PTSD, people who have a history of trauma and hypocortisolism often have symptoms of emotional regulation because their body is conserving energy, conserving those excitatory neurochemicals that fuel fight or flee responses. It's conserving those until it sees that there's really, really an imminent threat. So normal things, you know, the person, you know, just doesn't even pay attention to. But when something happens that triggers them, they go from zero to 260. There can be with withdrawal or constant immersion in relationships. Sometimes, instead of withdrawing from relationships and keeping people at arm's length, people have to be around somebody all the time. They feel like they need somebody to stay with them. And if they don't have somebody physically with them, they need to be on the phone or texting with somebody else all the time. They need that connection because they're so afraid of being isolated and abandoned. There can be a reduced level of functioning at home, school, work, and in the community. When we are stressed, when our HPA axis, our threat response system, is activated, our brain is not in that problem-solving, higher-order cognitive place. It's in protect me. It's in I'm going to do what I can to tread water and survive. So that energy is being devoted to survival which means you're, you're going to have more difficulty concentrating. You're going to be more fatigued because you're not sleeping well. You're going to be more apathetic and less motivated to do things that are less essential to survival because your brain is focused on surviving. Even if that trauma is no longer present, it takes people a while to get back that energy. If they have been on for weeks or months, um, then it can be exhausting. I remember when, when my daddy died, 
he was in hospice care and the last couple of months he was in hospice care at home and my stepmother was just totally totally exhausted by the end of it because it had been this long drawn out trauma as he went through the stages of, of passing um, so we want to recognize that it may not be willful apathy reduced level of functioning can be a result of trauma and we want to recognize <clears throat> why that might be happening and there can be exacerbation of pre-existing mental health or addiction problems so <clears throat> if somebody is holding it together pretty well um, or seems to be and a trauma happens they may relapse they may become clinically depressed they may start having panic attacks again or they may relapse in their addiction this if you view it in in terms of any of the these behaviors in some way somehow are an effort of the person to protect themselves and to survive the trauma so we want to say okay you're trying to survive right now let me help you survive better safety is a core concern after trauma trauma can magnify concerns about dangers so you know I, I my children even to this day and you know it kind of breaks my heart a little bit but they were very little when hurricane Katrina happened and but my son does remember it so every time there is a bad storm coming in especially a tropical depression or stronger he becomes obsessed with the weather and whether it's going to hit where we have any family at and he just he focuses on that um, no matter how much I reassure him that all of our family is very much inland and a hurricane has never come that far inland and been more than like a category one he has difficulty wrapping his head around that even at 18 so trauma can magnify concerns about dangers because they get people can get stuck on the fact that this was it could be deadly and I just hear deadly from all of the news stations and that's what I'm focusing on and it can trauma can make it more difficult to distinguish between safe and unsafe situations think about the child that grew up in a domestically violent home you know that was their normal so it's hard for them to distinguish between safe and unsafe situations right now um, people who have been through hurricanes you know may have difficulty differentiating between a hurricane that's safe to ride out and a hurricane that's that's not um, so again trauma can alter and part of that depends on the person's prior experiences placing people in physically safe circumstances may not be sufficient to alleviate their fears or restore their disrupted sense of safety and security so we need to ensure that people um, feel safe but they need to feel emotionally safe they need to feel um, cognitively safe and they need to feel like they've got support traumatic experiences affect the family and broader caregiving systems family members or social supports own distress can impair their ability to support the traumatized person if you have a person in your family who is a rape survivor the family members may want to be there for that person but they are so traumatized by what happened their guilt for not protecting them whatever is going on with them that they have difficulty acknowledging and supporting the person who actually went th the primary traumatized person this compounds the survivor's sense 
of reduced protection and security. It's like, okay, my family who was supposed to be able to be there to help me through this, they can't even look me in the face right now. So what does that mean? That means I don't have anybody that has my back. And that means maybe other people are looking down on me. Protective factors that can reduce the adverse impact of trauma. These are things we want to make sure we enhance in our families, in ourselves, and in our communities. High self-esteem. You know, people need to think that, you know what? I'm not perfect. I make mistakes. But gosh darn it, I am really a nice person. I'm a good person and I do have some skills. I have some talents. I have some things that I'm really good at. We want to... instill self-efficacy the the feeling that everybody has the ability to survive and to thrive in whatever way they want to so that they can achieve their goals we want to encourage and make sure everybody possesses a repertoire of adaptive coping skills you're not born with coping skills You learn your coping skills. So if you learn dysfunctional coping skills, then that's what you're going to be using as an adult. If you learn adaptive coping skills, which I really wish they would teach in elementary and middle school health classes, just a little soapbox there. Um, If you learn positive adaptive coping skills, then it's going to be easier to deal with the adverse impacts of trauma, if you learn psychological flexibility, if you learn how to reach out and get social support. Positive secure attachment really reduces the adverse impact of trauma. And yes, the primary attachment relationship ideally, you know, was a good one that was secure, where the child felt that, you know what, mom's got my back. You know, I can start trying to walk and if I fall, she's going to pick me up and, you know, not let me get too terribly hurt. Um, Positive, secure attachment with that caregiver, trusting that there's a caregiver there that's going to keep you safe. That's the first relationship that people have. Now, even if that one wasn't a great one, that doesn't mean the person is doomed. If they've developed a positive, secure attachment with somebody else, somebody who has been there, who has loved them for who they are, despite some of their actions, then they start learning that, okay, everyone is not necessarily going to abandon me. Effective, reliable social support. And this goes beyond secure attachment because we have those people that we have a strong attachment to that are there, they have our back, they are, you know, our rocks. But then we also want to make sure that we have friends, reliable social support that we can call on and we can go, you know what, I'm having a really bad day. Or, you know... I found out that the the hurricane's coming this way and I need somewhere to bug out. Can I sleep on your sofa? Whatever it is, friends are there to provide that social support during that traumatic period and after. And a supportive school, work, and community environment. You know, when a trauma happens, it's important that these environments are supportive. When, you know, when my father was sick, my organization, my boss, my company was very respectful of what was going on. My colleagues were so supportive of what was going on, which helped me get through it. You know, I felt like I wasn't the only one, and I felt like um, my feelings were very validated when I was going through this process. You know, you don't have to go over and be- 
over and above and get all gushy about it but it's important to be there and say you know what i recognize this when you know, things happen in our life and how can i support you to help you get through this um you know my boss always knew that family was important to me when my son was born and he was born um uh, 11 weeks premature so you know he was in the NICU my boss was very supportive and understanding about me working remotely because I was working from the NICU every day um, so those types of things really help people reduce the adverse impact of trauma in a community you know my mother is going through chemotherapy right now and her church friends are regularly bringing over meals and stuff so her, her husband doesn't have to cook um, and they help her with the shopping and things like that so her community realized that they were going through a traumatic time and they have bonded together to support her and her husband um, during this time so they don't feel like they're out there just floundering they, they are getting all of their needs met and they know that there are people they can call on trauma and post-trauma adversities can strongly influence development so if it happens when people are younger which it often does if you look at the aces study you can see regressive behavior when children are displaced either into foster care or into a shelter because of a hurricane or something a lot of times we will see those children regress behaviorally they may become more aggressive they may start getting more hyper and running around they may start thumb sucking again you know things that they had outgrown or you thought they developed behavioral control over they start coming out again a little bit we want to recognize that what's the function how does this protect this person when they start acting like that they may be blowing off steam because they've got so much anxiety they may be needing boundaries and limits set in order for to have some sort of normalcy you know there's a lot of reasons it can happen but it does influence development and it can influence brain development and it can actually make permanent brain ch changes um, if the trauma is significant or long-lasting enough there can be reluctance or inability to participate in developmentally appropriate activities um, that's pretty self-explanatory and for children developmental accelerations such as leaving home at an early age and engagement in precocious sexual behavior may also occur occur um, i remember one young person that i worked with um, her home life was pretty chaotic her mother was um, substance abusing dad was out of the picture i can't remember if he was in jail or what um, but she announced to me the first time i i met her she was 14 and she announced to me that she was in the process of trying to get pregnant because she could get an apartment as as soon as she was 14 or she thought she could um and that was her goal because then she would have control over everything in her life and she wouldn't have to be in this traumatic stressful environment um sometimes people engage in precocious sexual behavior because they desperately need that connection and to feel loved and secure and they think that's how to get it so the reasons people do these vary from person to person but again look at the behavior in terms of a survival reaction to a trauma and then figure out what need is it meeting in what way is it helping this person feel safe or less upset or whatever and 
what else could we help the person do instead in order to achieve their goals in a healthier, more productive way? Neurobiology underlies reactions to traumatic events. The capacity to appraise and respond to a danger are linked to neurophysiological pathways and neuroendocrine systems. The danger apparatus um, in our brain, our HPA axis, controls our appraisal of dangerous situations. You know, if the HPA axis doesn't think it's dangerous, you know, it sees the situation, checks with memories, it says, no, nah, this is no big deal, then we're not going to get upset about it, which could be okay. But if it is actually a dangerous situation, then that could be, could be bad. It controls emotional and physical reactions. When the HPA axis gets activated, it causes a reduction in sex hormones, a reduction in serotonin, a reduction in melatonin, and an increase in glutamate and norepinephrine, the, the chemicals that are going to get us to fight or flee, which is going to trigger feelings of either anger or anxiety. And it controls our protective actions. It controls what we do. A lot of these are very um, centered in very primitive areas of our brain because when we get to this place where we are just trying to survive and protect ourselves from something we perceive as really threatening, we're not thinking about it right now. It's the amygdala and some of the other um, more primitive aspects of our brain that are going, you need to fight, you need to flee, you need to do something to get yourself into a safe place. Traumatic experiences evoke strong biological result responses that can persist and in children alter the normal course of neurobiological maturation. When the brain is under stress, when the brain is regularly exposed to trauma or exposed to extreme trauma, it can alter the formation of the brain as it's supposed to. We've, we've seen... Um, on, on brain scans, that traumatic brain injury that's caused by something physical, we also see similar traumatic brain injuries that are caused by intense trauma. We see actual brain changes. We see actual changes in the HPA axis. We see changes in which areas of the brain light up in, when exposed to certain stimuli. The neurobiological impact of trauma experiences depends in part on the developmental stage in which they occur. It's going to be much more impactful, most likely, if it occurs in, in a younger person than if it, if it occurs in somebody over the age of 25. Because remember, the brain is still developing up to the age of 25. It's maybe more traumatic to a person and thus have a stronger neurobiological impact on children under 12 who are still egocentric, dichotomous, and concrete in their thoughts than to an adolescent who has a few more life experiences and can also think more abstractly. And it also depends in part on the number and intensity of traumatic experiences. If somebody has a lot of chronic trauma, that's additive. You know, it's not just, oh, you know, and, and think about law enforcement officers or firefighters. They see trauma on the daily, and they take that with them when they go to sleep at night. So those traumatic experiences can add up if they don't have a healthy and effective ways of dealing with them. So trauma impacts the majority of people. They find that 
most people have been exposed to trauma around 70 percent have been exposed to some kind of trauma in their life creating a trauma-informed organization means recognizing the sources and impacts of trauma that exist and how your staff your clients your families and community have been exposed to trauma and have been affected by trauma a trauma-informed organization prevents recapitulation or redoing trauma in an organization we don't want to recreate that traumatic system and have clients come walking into it because that's you know you wouldn't do that we want to explore current behaviors in terms of creative ingrained ways of coping with trauma in order to survive and we want to make sure that staff are trained on how to maintain a culturally responsive safe atmosphere in the organization and with referral sources we want to educate clients families and the community about the impact of trauma because once they understand the impact then they can start better understanding the behavioral responses and then responding better in order to be more trauma informed themselves empower clients to choose change and make sure your organization either implements themselves or has a very close relationship with an organization that has trauma-specific interventions available to clients. Alrighty, everybody, thanks for being with me and have a great weekend. If this podcast helps you help your clients or yourself, please support us by purchasing your CEUs at allceus.com or getting your agency to sponsor an episode. A direct link to the on-demand CEUs for this podcast is at allceus.com slash podcast CEUs. That's all CEUs.com slash podcast CEUs. To sponsor an episode of Counselor Toolbox and reach over 50,000 clinicians per week, go to all CEUs.com slash sponsor. Thank you.